Well, as we prepare to open the word of the Lord together, let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Where we're going to open your word and we're going to consider what you have inspired someone to write. Because of situations and difficulties that our brothers and sisters in Christ encountered nearly 2,000 years ago. And so, God, I pray that these ancient words would speak new and fresh into our, into our situation. Lord, give us understanding as we seek to read and consider, contemplate all that you have placed there. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Help us to understand it by your spirit. Help us to apply it. That you might be glorified and the world around us might know of your goodness and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This week I was listening to a podcast. And it was, I I think, providential that I had an opportunity to listen to it. The podcast was uh, the Gospel Coalition podcast, and the speaker was a guy named Michael Kruger. And he asked this question that really intrigued me right at the beginning. He said, whatever happened to Susan Pevensley? Whatever happened to Susan? And some of you might be thinking, who in the world is Susan? Well, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that Susan is the oldest of the four Pevensley kids. Not the oldest. She's the oldest girl of the four Pevensley kids. And these kids, in in this story that that C.S. Lewis wrote, he, he had this, it was during World War II, and the kids went off to this magical land where they got to imagine and got to explore this world that was ruled by this lion king named Aslan. And the kids got to enjoy and, and figure out, well, what is going on here? And they got to battle against good and, or battle against evil for good and for, for the kingdom of Aslan against the, the kingdom of the white witch and so many things. Well, in the last book in this series, it's about seven books long. One character is noticeably absent and that is Susan Pevensley. You see, one of the things I think that C.S. Lewis did is he helped us realize that there are people who believe and they believe lifelong and they stick with it and they, the, the faith that they've learned as a child grows with them until they graduate, until they enter into eternity. And then there are some people who, as they're walking along, kind of like Susan, see those stories, those Bible stories as something good, as good memories in the past. And they leave it behind. In fact, Kruger in his talk um, equated what, what was happening in Susan. Because even her siblings would, would ask her, why don't you come to Narnia with us? He's like, oh, those are good memories for you, but that's not for me anymore. Kruger in his talk related her situation to this trend of deconversion of 
deconstructing faith that people are going through these days. And it seems that some people are leaving the faith because of doubts. They have questions that just they don't feel like are adequately answered. Some people leave the faith because they feel like the biblical moral ethics are too stringent. They think, I want to be free to do what I want to do. And if the Bible tells me I can't do it, then that's not my Bible. And so they leave. Kruger went on to say that some people simply go quietly and others seem to go with great fanfare. They'll put out tweets and Instagram posts and all these things to tell the whole world I'm done. And many of them become better or even more motivated evangelists of deconversion than they ever were of the gospel. And so today, as we look at the book of Jude, we're going to see that this church was dealing with people who seemed to be struggling with, they may not have been deconverting as many people are doing today, but there were people in the church who were clearly not followers of Christ. Sometimes they're called apostates. Sometimes they're called false teachers. But it's clear that the book of Jude was written for a church that was dealing with people of true faith and people of a false faith. And so today, if you have your Bibles and want to open, uh, open up to the book of Jude, it is the second to last book of the Bible, which means that we are almost finished with our, our look at God's story in Scripture. This is a... a a series that we started nearly two years ago. Can you believe that? But here's the thing. If we were to summarize the book of Jude in one possibly run-on sentence, it would, it would read like this. Because of false teachers in the church, we must contend for the faith through inward-oriented spiritual disciplines and outward-focused ministry, assured of our standing with God. And so as we walk through the book, we're going to take each of those little phrases apart. And so if you're one of those people that likes to get ahead, you could probably figure out what all the blanks are just by looking at the screen. But we'll, we'll give them to you one at a time. Jude begins by looking at these, uh, by basically saying, because of false teachers in the church. And we see this in verses 1 through 19. But let's consider the, the first few verses, verses 1 through 4. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. By, by the way, Jude is most likely one of Jesus' brothers, um, one of his half-brothers. So James, we read his book a couple weeks ago. Jude is, is James's full brother and Jesus' half-brother. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, I think it's important for us to understand that this was not Jude's original plan. He wanted to talk about this doctrine of salvation, this, this joyous life that we have because of what Jesus Christ did for us. 
And yet because of situations and circumstances in the church, he had to change course. And he, it, most likely, it seems like he borrowed some things that we got to read in Second Peter chapter 2 and sent it to these believers. And over the course of these 19 verses, Jude goes into great lengths to talk about the qualities of these people who have crept in unnoticed. And it seems like Jude is referring here to people who are not really Christians, but are rather wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 17, Matthew 7, 15. Jesus referred to false prophets this way. But here's some things that Jude says. Jude says that these people, these unbelievers, these apostates, these false teachers are ungodly. They, they lack attributes that are exemplary of what men and women of God should be like. But he also says that these people pervert grace into sensuality. And in other words, they seem to celebrate a freedom to sin rather than a freedom from sin. And these people also deny the lordship of Jesus. They want to look beyond. They don't believe that Jesus is sufficient. They don't believe that what he did is complete. So they want to look beyond that to other things and just simply deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. In in verse 8, Jude restates their actions in a little bit of a different way. Look at what it says there. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. You see, the, the foundation of their faith, if we could call it a faith at all, is based on whims of their dreams and visions and not established on the Word of God. Jude has some other strong words to say about their character. Look at what it says in verses 12 to 13. I, I love Jude's, uh, just the way that he awakens our minds to understand the nature of, of these false teachers or the nature of these people who are not really followers of Christ. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds swept along by strong winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude, tell us what you really think about these people. But let's think about this for just a moment. Think about that phrase, hidden reefs. The the New Living Translation translates that as dangerous reefs that can shipwreck. Think about this. if you if you ever have ever been on a boat, you, you know you want to look out for those places where reefs are, are just beneath the surface, right? You want to make sure you're not going to run your boat in, into those. Because if you do, you're going to end up being that shipwreck. You're going to end up having your boat join the reef that has just taken out the bottom of your hull. And so these people are unseen and, and fearless. Their purpose is to destroy This might be that person who comes saying the right things at first, but then begins to instill doubt or teach falsehoods. And they begin to pick people off one by one. You see, reefs, when they cause a shipwreck, 
They add to their influence. They feed themselves on ships that sink. It makes for great scuba diving, so I've heard. But it makes for a horrible church experience as people are picked off, as lives are fractured and splintered by contrary teachings. He mixes in another, another metaphor talking about shepherds who are feeding themselves. Right? Shepherds, what is their purpose? They're supposed to be watching out for the sheep in their care, and yet these people, these false teachers, are, are people who are feeding themselves. Let me, let me gather more of a following for me and not lead, lead people to Christ. But Jude also calls these people waterless clouds. There is no substance in what they, what they do, what they are saying or teaching. Just as a waterless cloud drifts and floats, they look nice. They don't produce any fruit on the ground. They don't bring any nourishment to the earth. They simply shade the sun for a while. They're fruitless trees. I love his metaphor there. They can't bear fruit because their MO is destruction or theft or even deconversion. They are not life-giving, but they are life taking they're fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead and uprooted this is a beautiful picture beautiful horrible picture they're wild waves as they teach and coerce they reveal their own shameful behavior they produce all this froth and once you get through the froth there's really nothing there they're wandering stars alone in the darkness of space that has been reserved for them Several years ago, Joshua Harris, who was a pastor of a church here locally, and I know a lot of people know him, and you know, he made a public departure from the faith. He was in a, is, is currently in a phase of deconstructing his faith, and, and frankly, that caused a lot of people to question their own faith. I don't know that Josh is intentionally trying to draw people away. But I do think that his, the public nature of his departure has caused some people to be derailed. And let me just encourage us because guys like Josh, they need our prayers. They need us to be lifting them up before the Lord. But we also need to be aware of what happens when guys like that and uh, there's so many others. So Jude helps us to understand that there have always been these kind of false teachers. Just as, false, just as the teachers of falsehood experienced judgment in the past, so will the people in the present. And Jude goes to great lengths to talk about three groups of people who were judged in the past and the way that God judged them. For instance, the, the, the Israelites who, who refused to believe that God was going to lead them to the promised land. In verse 5, Jude... Uh, basically said that these people, these unbelievers, received the judgment of God because they wouldn't be allowed into the promised land. 
In Jude, chapter, Jude verse 6, it talks about angels who rebelled against God. And, and, and so they received their own judgment. And in, in verse 7, we read, we read about Sodom and Gomorrah and the way that God judged them because of their immorality. And it seems like Jude is trying to give us confidence in the sovereign plan and the will of God. God was the one who brought about judgment on those people. And God will do the same today. And it seems like this is where we can tend to get in a little bit of a problem. And I, I realize that even mentioning Joshua Harris's name, I'm causing all sorts of thoughts for, for us because, frankly, he wrote some really good books and he was a, an amazing preacher. And so in speaking about him, I'm not trying to condemn him, but sometimes I think we as Christians, we can get into God's role in judging people and typically we do it online, right? We'll make posts and repost something that someone else posted and then it just amplifies the craziness. And it seems like Jude is encouraging us, saying God is in control of those false teachers. Let him have it. I've got another job for you. God is in control. Trust that God is at work in these situations. In fact, there's a point where Jude even references uh, some extra biblical material. He, he talks about uh, this interesting encounter when the archangel Michael was having a, a dispute with the devil. And rather than judging the devil, the, the devil at the time, he simply re- finishes this argument by saying, The Lord rebuke you. It's God's job. It's not mine. The Lord rebuke you. Now, some of the false teachers that Jude referred to were outside of the church. And we have to recognize that we will face false teachers inside and outside. We may have a little bit more authority and ability to work inside, but they are all around us. And we have to be aware. We must pay attention. And so, because of the false teachers in the church, Jude continues with this charge. He says, we must contend for the faith. We see that in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, he, he had that different purpose for writing before, but now he's compelled by what's happening. And he, he leads, leads this, leaves us this charge. And this, his charge to contend for the faith is a struggle. It's a battle. In fact, that Greek word there that, we, where, that is translated contend, it, it, it's where we get our word agonize. We're, we're to agonize for the faith. We're not to roll over and submit to every wind of, whim of new doctrine or the latest trends in relevant theology. But we should wrestle and struggle for our faith. I've told you guys before about our dog, Dakota. I think she photobombed a couple of the Kids Connection videos. She's a little seven-pound tricolor Morky. Maltese Shih Tzu Yorkie Poodle. That's why Morky. And she's a very personable and energetic dog. She's, a, she's our first dog together as a family. 
And it's, it's so interesting learning to take care of this little dog because they're, she's gradually learning to be a Gilbert and we're gradually learning to be dog parents. And she seems to have this innate ability to know when we're about to leave. She can see us getting things together. Typically, we'll take one of her bones and fill it with peanut butter, and she knows, oh, man. As soon as the, the peanut butter jar comes out, she's like, oh. You can almost hear that sigh. Oh, no, it's coming. And so eventually, we're, you know, right about that time, she'll tuck her ears back, and she'll lay on the ground and go belly up, big eyes like, do I have to go? But she'll roll over and submit to what we're asking her to do. And so we'll pick her up and put her in her crate so she's safe while we're gone and doesn't destroy everything else in the house. But then there are these other times when she refuses to roll over and do what we want her to do. And typically it's when I'm trying to read or when we're watching TV, she'll take her little ball and bring it up to me and she'll drop it. And so, of course, it goes, it makes that little da-da-da. And she picks it up again and drops it like she's dribbling, saying, hey, dad, come on, you need to play with me. Or, and if I'm not paying enough attention to her, she'll eventually go, Urgh! and she'll start to growl at me to get me to pay attention. She's contending for my attention. She wants me to know that she's there. And I realize it's a bit of a simplistic example, but the point is Dakota isn't giving up easily in those situations. Eventually, if... Sometimes she does. If I just can't do it right then, she'll eventually give up and go lay on the couch and bark at all the people who are walking by. But as we contend for our faith in the actions that we're going to talk about in just a few moments, we, we, have, to pay, we have to realize we can't simply roll over and submit to what's happening around us. We must press and pursue. We must learn and dig and do so much more as we agonize in our faith. In fact, Jude says that this faith, faith was once for all delivered to the saints. One of the commentators suggested that there was a, a set of doctrinal standards that, would, that was established by the time Jude wrote this in the latter third of the first century. And so some of these false teachers were teaching things based on dreams or even rationalizations, rationalizing their sinful behavior, saying, Oh, no, God's not going to judge us. That grace abounds. Even the Apostle Paul wrote, where grace abounds, sin abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. They just forget the next part. Should we go on sinning? And may it never be. So Jude continues, because of false teachers in the church, we must contend for the faith through inward-oriented spiritual disciplines. I think we see this in verses 20 and 21. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And let me encourage you, if you have your own Bibles, take a moment now or later on today to circle the verbs in that verse. Because if you'll notice, there, there are a few verbs. One is building, one is praying, one is keeping or keep, and one is waiting or wait. And I think in many ways, these are indicative of spiritual disciplines or, or habits that help us grow in our faith. First of all, we see his charge to build ourselves up, build your, building yourselves up. 
And notice the, the way that that verb is, is placed in there. He says building, as though it's this constant, ongoing, never-ending process. We are constantly building ourselves up in the faith. You see, our faith is not simply a transactional event. As Baptists, we like to say, once saved, always saved, right? And yet, yes, that there was a moment when we became followers of Christ, and, but there's this ongoing growth. And if all our faith is, is that transaction, then I think we might see that might not have been a genuine transaction. So Jude is encouraging us, build yourselves up in the faith. And I, I think, you know, he doesn't go into detail about what this is, but I think individually this is where we have that obligation, that joy of, of having times of Bible reading, of meditating on God's word, of memorizing God's word, getting it in our minds and on our hearts. So I, I want to ask us, ask you, how are you doing in your individual building yourself up? Are you regularly in the Word of God on your own? Because I tell you, if, if, if your diet of the Word of God is hour, hour and a half or so on Sunday morning, you're probably pretty anemic. You're undernourished spiritually because of all the things around us. Think about all those voices that are competing for our attention. All those voices that are competing for our hearts. We must daily build ourselves up, regularly build ourselves up in the Word of God. But also we get to do this corporately through times of worship together like this as we worship God in song and prayer and as we read the Word and, and hear the Word preached. We continue this process of, of building ourselves up. But I think it's also corporately through discipling one another. In, in small groups or one-on-one -on -one relationships or even in, in class settings. And, and I think that's one thing that has made this pandemic so challenging is that the class, that interaction that we can have, it's so weird to do it online. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll meet with the kids sometimes in, in the ice cream Zoom or in the middle school class and I'll ask a question generally. Hey, what do you think about this? I get crickets. I get nothing. Sometimes. I don't know if it's like that for the adult Bible study class because I'm always in here. But, but I, we're going to work to reopen things fully in September. And I think it's important for us to be people, not only be people who are willing to engage, willing to participate in discipleship opportunities, opportunities to learn and grow, but be willing to be people who are discipling. Making disciples of us. Because that is a charge that has been given to us. So are you willing to disciple other people? Maybe, maybe talk to Carl or Vern or one of the children's teachers or come talk to me. I'd love to have you come and assist in, in the middle school class. Learn that process of making disciples in that setting. Maybe it's even about participating in a discipling group as we work toward... Remember, one of our goals is to have a discipleship group in each neighborhood of Poolsville. That means there's like 13. 13 or 14 neighborhoods, depending on how we divide them out. We'd love to... Uh, oh, what a joy it would be to see that happen. And we're going to be working toward making some of that happen this fall. But the next verb that, that, that uh, Jude 
puts before us is the verb praying, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know praying can sometimes be intimidating. What does, it, what does this mean to pray in the Spirit? What does that look like? And I think we have to start with praying and even praying with the prayer that, that Carolyn taught the kids this morning, praying the Lord's Prayer, taking those categories and saying, God, you, you are holy. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom. God, I want what, what you have up there to be down here. And, and as it pertains to me, help me to be faithful in that. Lord, you are a provider giving us this, this day our daily bread and help me to forgive others. But let me encourage you to maybe take our prayer list. We don't use it. We don't, this isn't just kindling. In fact, it's not kindling at all. It's an opportunity for us to intercede on behalf of one another, to pray for one another. We know a few details here, but maybe as we spend some time quietly before the Lord, we can pray, God, what needs to be done in this situation? Ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. And let me encourage you to join us on Wednesdays as we pray. I told you before, I learned so much getting to hear brothers and sisters in Christ pray. It was, it, this week was, was such a joy. In fact, I, I learned something new this week as we got to pray together. As I learned some... Oh, I'm not going to go into details, but you, you just have to be there. I picked up a book recently called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. And in the, some of the opening chapters of his book, he, he talks about this idea of praying. And he, he almost alludes to it this way. Tell me if this happens to you. You, you might be sitting down. I know in, in my house, I sit in our living room, which is you know the front room upstairs of the house. And, and I have this red chair. And I, I sit there and I have my cup of coffee. And I've, I've read the Bible. I've read the other devotional materials. And now I'm praying. And I'm praying silently. And I'm, I get to the thing on my list that says adoration. So I'm praising God for, for what he's doing and then I start thinking oh and I have to email that person today and I have to call that and I oh oh sorry God please forgive me for all my sin and then I go to the next part of my prayer list and 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 are you guys like this or is it just me and and we get to the next part and I'm praying for my family members and and praying for various people and 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 I'm I'm you know, my mind, I'm praying for my dad and then my mind wanders onto something. I'm praying for Danielle and, and praying for the kids. And then my mind goes, it's like constantly coming back. And I was so refreshed, so encouraged when this spiritual giant, D.A. Carson, he teaches at, at uh, Trinity Evangelical Seminary. I was like, oh, good. It's not just me. But he gave some helpful things just to begin rather than praying silently. Because I don't want, you know, it's early in the morning. I don't want to wake everybody up. But he said, just mumble it. Pray loud enough so that only you hear it. But so your mind and your mouth are engaged. Or maybe begin writing it. And I'm going I'm to start working on, on some of that over the next few weeks. Just to begin to pray differently. But Paul, or Paul, Jude continues. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Build yourselves up, praying in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And this verb, keep, has the connotation of guarding or remaining steadfast. You see, the love of God is immovable and sure. And we learned in our study of the Old Testament that that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And one of the things that 
I think we're going to see in a few moments is that we are already kept secure in God's love. But I think our part is to remember, to constantly be reminded of the depth of God's love for us. We can't earn any more of it or lose any less of it, but we can easily forget. So I want to challenge us, don't forget to remember that you are loved by God. That what Christ has done. This is why we do the Lord's Supper so frequently. So we can remember. Remember what Jesus did for us. Remember that that is a demonstration of God's love. Let that sink in for for a moment. God loves you. God loves you. When you've said that thing that you shouldn't have, God loves you. When you've thought that thought that you know you hope never makes it to the light of day, God loves you. So in keeping ourselves there, we are to live our lives knowing that we are loved by God. That doesn't make all those sinful things excusable, but it doesn't cut us from the love of God. And final, the final inward-oriented spiritual discipline that Jude mentions is waiting. <laughs> waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I've got to tell you, I hate waiting. When I ask my kids to do something, I expect them to do it. And when the dishes still aren't done in the morning, man, are you? Or when you drive through Dunkin' Donuts and they're brewing coffee after you place the order. See, I, I like to think of myself as a patient person, but if I'm honest, I'm not patient. I want things now. And this idea of waiting on what Jesus has accomplished. There, 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 there were first century Christians who thought Jesus was coming soon. And I think it's important for us to recognize that he is not finished working and acting and doing. So our waiting is an act of trust. Our waiting is an act of submission. God, we know that you are accomplishing something. In fact, sang about it a little bit earlier. Remember, Jesus told us, he said, when the, word, when the gospel is preached in, in every nation, then the end will come. And we sang about the fact that there will be a time when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered together to sing. And so we get to wait for that. I think that's where we get to actively wait. Because if there are still some tribes and tongues and people that, that don't know Christ, then we get to go and talk to them. But I think so often we can fix our eyes on the things that are happening around here, fix our eyes on the problems and forget to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember what Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting on the mercy of 
Jesus is a bit like fixing our eyes on him. You see, he's not only the founder, but he's the perfecter. And some people say, some translations say the finisher of our faith. He is not done. We must wait. Have patience. Have patience. Do you guys remember that when you were a kid? Don't be in such a hurry. Sorry, that wasn't in my notes. So much of how we contend for our faith has that inward focus, that building up, that reinforcing, that instilling in others within the body in order to ensure that our our foundation is, is secure so that when we encounter false teachers, when we hear this new whim of doctrine, when we hear this new thing, we can say, wait, 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 wait. The Bible says this. You say that. The Bible says this. I may not understand everything that's here, but clearly that is not this. And I think that's why we need to work us on these inwardly focused spiritual disciplines. But Jude continues, because of the false teachers in the church, we must contend for our faith with inward oriented spiritual disciplines and outward focused ministry. We see this in verses 22 and 23. Jude writes, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. And I think the underlying concept here is mercy. And the question I have for us is, is that our normal response? Is mercy our response to people who are far from God? People who may have been close and now are leaving. Or people who are trying to pluck us away. What is our normal response when we learn that someone is drifting from the faith? Are we saddened? Are we angered? Are we compassionate? Are we acting in a merciful way toward outsiders and even insiders who are on the fringe? And Jude seems to talk about three different groups of people and it's a little hard to take his language here and it's a little bit difficult for us to understand exactly how he's working how he's how he would categorize these but it seems like he's talking about those who doubt and and others who need to be rescued or 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 snatched away and still others who seem to be living worldly lives so let's just think about this for a quick moment those who doubt jude urges us to have mercy on them And think about this, when we're showing mercy to someone, we're withholding a judgment that we think they should deserve, right? That's what God did for us, right? We because of our sin, we, the wages, the reward of our sin is death. And so God in his mercy and his love and compassion placed on his son, the judgment that we deserve. And so when we're showing mercy to someone else, we are withholding the judgment that we think they would deserve. We have a compassionate attitude. And I think in many cases it involves regular prayer for those who, who doubt. Because we have to remember doubts are real. We all have them from time to time. We all will run across something in Scripture and think, what? What does this tell me about God? Or what, what's going on here? And so just be... But I think it's important for us to recognize that just because you or I have a great deal of confidence in in one area of Scripture or in a certain doctrine that someone else is doubting in, we can't expect that they would have that same confidence. So we get to pray for them. We get to show them mercy. 
I think this is where our personal ministry of hospitality can be helpful as we engage people. A friend of mine named Tim, who's a pastor over in Virginia, he recently invited his, his neighbors over for a cookout, a potluck kind of cookout. And one of his neighbors is this uh, sing, middle-aged single guy. And he does not like Christians. Tim, like I said, is a pastor. So what's the worst Christian ever? A pastor. And so he's, he's like, this, this neighbor was on the fence. He's like, ah, I'm not sure I'm going to go, but I'll give it a shot anyway. So he, he made a dish for this potluck cookout, and he brought it over. And, and so Tim's neighbor came drunk, fully drunk. And so Tim was gracious. They had a great time together, all the neighbors together. They were all talking and carrying on and had a great meal. Well, Tim's neighbor left and at, at whatever time he decided was appropriate for him to leave, and, and he went back home. Well, of course, because his mind was not fully engaged because it had been in a bottle, he forgot his dish. And so Tim cleaned up his dish, and the next day he took it back over to his neighbor, knocked on the door, and the neighbor came out, and they sat on the porch for a few minutes. Again, the neighbor was drunk. And Tim talked to him. He had a, a little bit of a chance to hear why he hates Christians so much. Because this guy thinks that believing in Christianity is just stupid. Like, why would anybody believe that? And yet Tim was patient. He was merciful. Rather than getting defensive, he spent time to listen. And he heard his story about how he's now getting back into, falling back into alcoholism. After it already destroyed his family. You know what's cool? In that one brief 5, 10, 15 minute conversation on his neighbor's porch, Tim asked him if he could pray for him. And the man said yes. The man who hates Christians got a Christian pastor to pray for him and allowed that to happen. And then he finished up by saying, Tim, I'm looking forward to a long lasting relationship. Because Tim showed mercy to this one who doubted. Tim's neighbor might be categorized in this, in this next category of those in need of rescue. And it seems like there are some people who are in such a bad situation that they just need to be yanked out of it. They don't know how to make things right they don't they they need salvation and they need it drastically and so this might involve like i said removing people from a bad situation in order to bring them new influences and most importantly the gospel and i think in some ways this is where foster care comes into into play you take children from a situation that is horrible and bring them into a situation that is that is saturated with the gospel so that they understand the depth of God's love for them, leading them to salvation. There may be other, there other situations that, where, where we have that rescuing, that pulling away. In order to help them see their need for salvation. But there's a third group that, that uh, Jude talks about here. And these seems to be people, those seem to be those who are living worldly lives. And I've wrestled with this because if you look in the text, if you look at what it says in, in, um, 
verses 22 and 23, Jude writes, he, he says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And I was like, Jude, what are you saying? Who are these others? And what am I hating? Because you're saying show mercy and yet hating. And how does that go together? And it seems like what Jude is getting at, he's sort of echoing something that the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because when we're pulling people out of sin, oh, that sin looks so enticing sometimes. So I think that's why Jude is saying, hey, show mercy to others, but hate that even stain of sin that could be on you. Watch yourself. So are we showing mercy to those who are on the outside or on the fringe? And how would they know? How can they know unless we do something to communicate to them? And I think we must be willing to move from those inward-oriented spiritual disciplines. Those are the inward-oriented spiritual disciplines can be fun. We can get into habits. I'm a very habitual person. My dog knows that. Five o'clock, the alarm goes off. She goes out, goes back in her kennel, and I leave. And then it's just the, it's the day. It's how it goes. Then those inward-oriented spiritual disciplines are like, okay, God, I'm going to read this. I like that. But, man, those outward-focused ministries can be so inconvenient. But that is what we're called to do. That is what we're called to do. So I believe we need to pray for, for those individual, but also those corporate mercy ministries that God is laying before us. What is it that we can do to be mindful of those who are far from Him? So Jude writes, we're summarizing, because of false teachers in the church, we must contend for the faith with inward-oriented spiritual disciplines and outward-focused ministry, finally assured of our standing with God. Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Beloved, I, I want us to understand that Jesus is the one who is able to keep us from falling into sin. And that's where we have the Holy Spirit. That's where His indwelling Spirit is what is helping us. But he is also the one who is going to present us blameless before a holy God. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you responded to him, his righteousness was imputed, was placed on you. So that when you stand before God in the final day, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I, we are identified with Christ. We cannot lose that. So as we close, friend, if you are one of those ones who are doubting or if you are stuck in sin or feel like you've fallen from your faith, then let me encourage you. Return to the loving arms of our Savior. He gave his life for you. He welcomes you into his family. 
we gladly welcome you into this family, this part of his family. Acknowledge your sin and turn from it. Trust in what Christ has done for you on the cross. Beloved brother and sister in Christ, if you are doubting, let me encourage you not to doubt on your own. Let's have a conversation. Or spend some time talking with someone around or some of you trust in the church. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be one of the elders. Find another brother or sister in Christ who can walk with you through these doubts. And we'll do our best to demonstrate the mercy that God is urging us to show. And beloved, I want to encourage us, as as you've thought about this, who has God brought to your mind? So you think about those who've doubted, those who've wandered, those who are on the fringe. What are you doing? What am I doing to show them mercy? What is our next step? And I think we need to pray. And that's where praying in the Spirit will come into play. Holy Spirit, help me to understand what I need to do in this person's life. I was recently listening to another podcast. I like to listen to podcasts. But another TGC podcast. And ironically, no, not ironically. One of Joshua Harris's brothers was on this podcast. He wasn't talking about Josh. He was talking about the other ministry. This is one of the brothers who wrote the book, Do Hard Things. This brother was the first one to actually go to college in their family. And now he's a lawyer up in New England. He's doing all this great work. And at one point in time, the interviewer asked him, because, of course, it's a well-known family and And Josh, of course, is the well-known brother of all these six kids. And so the interviewer asked him, he said, what about Josh? How is how is he doing? How do you process all of that? And his brother responded with sadness. It was sad. It is sad for him to see his older brother go through all this. But he also had hope. He said it's not over for Josh. He said, he needs our prayers. And so I want to encourage us, it is not over for for those around us who are deconstructing their faith. Those around us who are wandering. Those around us who are making decisions that seem like it just doesn't make sense. We need to be praying for them. It's not our job to save them. I was reminded about that in one of the books I'm reading. It's it's not our job to save people. We can simply share the good news and pray for them. God is the one who does the saving. Our job is to reinforce our spiritual foundation and then show them mercy. So one last time, the message of Jude to us is because of false teachers in the church, we must contend for our faith through inward-oriented spiritual disciplines and outward-focused ministry, assured of our standing with God. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the joy that we have of studying it. Thank you for Jude and for the way that you inspired him to write to these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond with the mercy that you charged them to to act with. Lord, help us to respond continually, building up our faith, praying in the Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God. 
and waiting. Patiently and yet eagerly waiting for your return. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.